Welcome, this is Coppercast, a new show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Michael Hall, the CIO and co-founding partner of Nickel Digital. Michael comes from the world of traditional finance. He grew up in the UK and Italy, where his father was posted in the armed forces, and he was educated at the University of Manchester, studying electronic engineering before going to work at Accenture. He later undertook an MBA at the Wharton School in Philadelphia and spent eight years in New York doing fixed income arbitrage at the Bankers Trust. But the Big Apple was no competition for the cultural diversity and accessibility of Europe, so he returned to London, where he's now firmly established in the crypto space and running what is widely regarded as one of the most successful digital asset funds on the planet. Welcome, Michael. Hello, thank you for having me here. Michael, in your show and tell segment, um, which to our listeners, if you haven't seen, please go to our Coppercast website uh, or YouTube channel, socials. Um, you talk about a new fund that's launching, the Nickel Digital Factors Fund. Um, do you want to go into a little bit more detail on that here? Yes. Cool. We've identified there's an issue in crypto. We've come across many small managers, but unfortunately uninvestable managers. These are typically managing amounts ranging from a few hundred thousand to maybe two or three million dollars. And they're very good at what they do. They're very, these managers are very clever. They generate a lot of alpha, but unfortunately they can't raise capital. Investors can't invest in them because they don't have the institutional infrastructure that your typical hedge fund investor wants. And what kind of infrastructure is that? Well, it's having an administrator, a custodian like Copper, a auditor like KPMG, they just can't afford to finance that infrastructure on the, with the small amount of assets that they have. It can cost a small manager up to $150,000 in their first year, and they have to cover that cost out of the, the trading fees they have. And so the, they just aren't managing uh, enough money to do that, and it's, the infrastructure is too expensive them. So we need to find a way of making it cheaper for them and getting them the capital they need. And that's in a nutshell what this fund is. And how, how's it doing that? So they, these, you identify an asset manager who's got, um, you know, a small fund, you like their strategy, you like their, their performance so far, but they can't get the bigger capital allocations, but you offer them the opportunity to leverage your infrastructure, the infrastructure that you guys already have access to, and you extend that to them, which means that they get access to higher capital allocations, is that right? Us, yes, very What we do is there are three processes to what we do. We do, uh, we do sourcing, we find the managers. Once we've identified managers, we then run them through a selection process where we, un- where we go through their strategy, we identify the, the source of their alpha. And then once we bring them in and allocate capital to them, we risk manage the managers on behalf of the investors in the fund. The way we get the uh, the costs down is we share the costs amongst managers. So rather than each manager having to have their own administrator, w- there is one administrator for the whole fund. And so there could be 20 managers within the fund, but they share one twentieth of the cost of that administrator. So that gets those costs down. On the capital allocation side, we've got very good relationships with investors. We've pre-raised money for the fund, and we then allocate that capital to those managers. So they don't have to go around looking for investors. They don't have to write a newsletter um, monthly for the investors. They don't have to deal with administrators and all the operational overhead of running a hedge fund. We do all of that for them. All they have to do is trade. 
So I guess um, it, it's worth pointing out at this point, uh, for anyone who doesn't know already, I mean, this isn't your first rodeo. Nichols got two funds, active funds already. Um, one is a, a statistical arbitrage fund or? Yes, it's an arbitrage yeah. fund. And then you've also got the digital gold institutional fund, which Correct. is BTC long only. Yes, that's a BTC tracker. Okay. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a lot of <laughs> activity. It's a lot of um, managers to manage, uh, a lot of mm -hmm. risk to manage. How, how is uh, Nickel expanding to accommodate all of this? Well, firstly, we're hiring. Uh, we're hiring uh, technologists and operational people to boost the operational infrastructure and the technical infrastructure of the fund. But really what we're doing is we're just uh, scaling the infrastructure we've built for the arbitrage fund. So another advantage that I haven't spoken of is, is fees. Because the arbitrage fund trades very high volumes doing arbitrage trades on exchanges, we get very good commission rates. And when the managers join us and they trade under our platform, they will get commission rates they wouldn't normally have access to. Mm -hmm. So it, what we're doing is we're scaling the infrastructure that we've already built. We have a, uh, the three partners, we have a chief operating officer, we have a middle office that we've set up. We have all of these structures set up and to really do a third fund is just an incremental piece of work. So it isn't as if we have to build this from scratch again. It's something we already have and then we can share that cost with the managers. How does this, um, this growth compare to, you know, your experiences in, in traditional finance before moving over, over to crypto? I mean, is it, I mean, the funds that are Nickel Digital is running now have been up and running for between, you know, a year and two years. Uh, would you say it's normal to, to see this kind of growth or this sort of, you know, reinvestment into setting up new funds and, and exploring new, new opportunities? I think it makes sense for us to do this now. Uh, you see parallel structures to this in the established uh, hedge fund world. Mm -hmm. There are some funds called multi-strategy funds that combine many managers within a multi-strategy approach. And this is even more necessary in crypto than it is in the traditional space. Because in the tr traditional space, it's easier for managers to raise the meaningful sums of capital, the 25, 50 million tickets they need to set up this infrastructure. But in crypto, it's really hard to get those kind of tickets and the tickets normally that come from investors, the investments that come from your, your typical crypto investor are normally much smaller, $1 million, $2 million tickets. So it's even harder in crypto to do this, which is why we're setting this fund up. Do you see, do you see things um, changing at all along those fronts? Because obviously um, the ARB fund that you set up was 2018, I guess, in like sort of peak winter, crypto winter or whatever. Uh, and then 2019 started, things started to grow again. Everyone's, you know, the institutions are coming. 2020 hits, you've got a pandemic and everything kind of shuts down. Um, but, but do you see it getting easier for crypto funds to raise capital because the profile of Bitcoin is, is elevating, maybe even during the pandemic specifically? Like, what, what do you see as the trend for, for crypto funds raising? I think as crypto becomes more institutional, then it should be easier for funds to raise money. But if one goes to the consultants now, people like Mercer, Cambridge Associates, they aren't recommending that their investors invest in crypto funds. They don't even have groups inside them that, who look at crypto funds. Mm. So uh, it's very much, this is very much what the hedge fund industry looked like in the 90s. So if you go back in time to the 90s, you had people like Paul Tudor Jones, Julian Robertson, you know, smaller managers and pension funds wouldn't touch investors, they wouldn't touch funds like that. But they gradually became more institutionalized, they 
change their structures, and now insurance companies and pension funds do invest in hedge funds, and they're one of the biggest backers of hedge funds now. We think that the crypto hedge fund space looks like the traditional hedge fund space does or did in the 1990s. And we think it's just a matter of time before this sector evolves, and we want to help it evolve. Was it the same, like the barriers that existed for hedge funds in the 90s um, before they could scale? Is it the same barriers that crypto funds face now, or is it a unique set because crypto is new? I think the the institutionalization of traditional hedge funds has kind of raised the bar. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, you didn't have to have a an auditor like. Sitco or Trident Trust, you you could just use your regular accountant and people would accept that. Now, all hedge funds need to have administrators. The pension funds, the consultants arrive with a big tick box, a very a lot of operational due diligence they expect to get done because that's what they've learned on regular hedge funds. And they think a crypto hedge fund should look exactly the same. When if one goes back to the 90s, uh, traditional hedge funds didn't have that. Do you and think the bar for crypto is going to be even higher because... I mean, it, it was born out of a, a retail offering effectively and has a or had a, a pretty bad reputation for, you know, illicit uses or, or whatever. I mean, does that set the bar even higher for crypto funds? Is, is it hard for administrators even to be interested in it because they don't know how to evaluate it? I think it does set it higher, but it's like with any new asset class. When new, when uh, derivatives uh, were first being used by hedge funds, administrators didn't understand those either. And they didn't know how to administer those either and had issues uh, valuing them. And currently, there are companies out there trying to solve those issues for the administrators, helping them do valuations. Uh, Luca is a company, for example, who's doing this, who is trying to help administrators value assets, help investors with their tax situations when they've been investing in crypto. So gradually, the crypto sector is building up the infrastructure to um, to solve these issues. But it, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm. It, it takes, there's an issue, entrepreneurs identify the issues, they build solutions to fix those, and then they gradually get built. And then, you know, a year later or six months later, everything's in place and we go on to the next issue. What, what do you think is the, the biggest issue at the moment? Or what's, what's the nearest issue to being solved? I think the biggest issues are in regulation. We've seen it recently with the DOJ and CFTC action against BitMEX. Mm -hmm. uh, there are still exchanges that need to be doing you know, proper KYC, AML checks on their investors. It's, I guess, very important for crypto to clean up its act in that respect and get legit and make its case. I mean, people say, oh, Bitcoin, that's used to buy drugs on the dark mm -hmm. web. Now... If you were going to do that, you wouldn't want to use Bitcoin. You'd use a privacy coin or another coin, but we don't trade those, by the way. But there's a, there are monies to do things like that. But yeah. uh, Bitcoin itself, there's nothing wrong. More money has been laundered with US dollar bills than have been ever been laundered with crypto. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so regulations is, is interesting. Um, how does that, you know, when something like the, the DOG going after, DOJ, um, going after um, BitMEX's C-suite, how... I mean, how quickly do you have to react to something like that? I think BitMEX reacted pretty quickly. I mean, we did. So we started looking at the open interest on BitMEX. It was falling. Cautiously, we took assets off, off BitMEX. And BitMEX, to their credit, were good at that. Instead of having their once every 24-hour withdrawal cycle, they, in, they put in every eight-hour withdrawal cycles to help people move their collateral around. So they didn't freeze and try and restrict and stop people taking money off BitMEX. They actually made it easier for them to do so, which in, in you know, 
counterintuitively helps them survive because mm. it looks as if they're open and they've got no issues. And we hope it makes us survive, but we think they have to go to become more institutional. And that means proper KYC, proper AML checks. Do you think there, there needs to be more exchanges of the, of BitMEX's scale um, in places that are more heavily regulated, like a, a US based or a UK based exchange of that? of that scale? Well, I think it would help. I mean, clearly uh, exchanges are trying to do that. Kraken with its purchase of crypto facilities, but even Kraken Futures hasn't been able to integrate what crypto facility does uh, in an offering for their US investors. Mm -hmm. They haven't been able to get that working yet because of US law. So, uh, and, and something else needs to change as well when you look at exchanges like CME and Bact. Mm -hmm. So they, they close at the weekends. And crypto doesn't close. Crypto trades 24-7. And we think that the traditional markets need to wake up and decide to trade 24-7 and take a leaf out of crypto's book. Uh, because information flow doesn't stop on a Friday afternoon and start again on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. Information flow is coming out constantly. In fact, and so traders need to be able to react to that information flow and trade 24-7 as crypto does now. Is that difficult for like a, a startup fund or a young fund? to, you know, who, who may not necessarily have the number of asset managers required to watch the clock 24-7. I mean, how do, how do they cope with markets that never sleep? Well, they, they have to automate. It's simple. They have to automate their trading. They have to automate their risk management. And that's something which I think crypto funds have to have. I mean, when you saw the events of March 12th, where Bitcoin fell in price from 8,000 to below 5,000, most of that happened between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., Yep. And uh, if you were either awake moving collateral around or you had an automated risk system that was trading for you and automatically moving that collateral around for you. And so I think that the, the newer managers have an advantage and they start with a clean sheet and they can automate from day one. They don't have to, it doesn't have to be an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're at JP Morgan now and you're thinking, how am I going to put all my market making activities or my trading activities on a 24 by 7 basis? That's a pretty big job. Do you think it'll happen? Do you think they will go that way? Well, traditional markets? It's, you know, will traditional car makers build electric cars? They're going to have to. If they don't, they'll go bust. Uh, JP Morgan, all the traditional financial services companies will, I think, be trading cryptocurrencies in 10 years' time. They'll be trading 24-7 in 10 years' time as if it was business as normal. Now, who's, who's going to get shaken out along the way? I don't know. But I'm pretty sure that's going to happen because it's a better way of trading. Do you think the, um, you know, the retail nature of where crypto came from will sustain itself? Do you think it'll continue to be of interest to, to retail investors or do you think institutions will just take over and it'll become a, you know, another tradable asset that big banks do and, and, and millennials or whoever think it's too out of their reach, for example? I think the nature of Bitcoin and the ease of doing Bitcoin transactions, the decentralization of Bitcoin will make it still attractive as a retail investment, just as equities are still attractive as a, a, as a retail investment. But institutions will uh, come into the market and they will presumably dominate. I mean, we know of institutions that are thinking making very large capital allocations to uh, crypto. But they, they have issues. They, it's very difficult to buy it in an institutional framework, mm -hmm. which is why we set up the Digital Gold Fund, to make it much easier for them to buy it through a traditional Cayman structure. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we've seen lately uh, are large multi-billion dollar companies uh, moving some of their treasury into 
Bitcoin allocations. I think MicroStrategy in the US, Square in the US. Is, is that something you think will continue on a much larger scale? Will that help institutions? Um, will it kind of hinder retail users? I mean, they're taking a lot of Bitcoin off the table. They're taking it off the table, but they're also there's plenty of Bitcoin out there as well, and it will just go higher in price. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is the the very beginning of this secular asset allocation to cryptocurrencies. And if you're a Euro, if you're a European corporate and you've got cash, that's costing you fifty basis points mm. a year just to have that money sitting in cash. Why not put some of it in Bitcoin? You don't have to put a hundred percent of it. But you put maybe one percent, two percent. You don't have to go the micro strategy route and put all of it in there. But when people see these companies start to be becoming successful, they'll probably follow suit. Yeah, I think Square's allocation was something like 1%. Yeah. Uh, like 50 million or something like that. I mean, for a payment company, it makes sense because you should have some float in a mm. currency that you think is going to be used as, as a uh, means of exchange. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Uh, that's an interesting question. Where, where does that put CBDCs in your mind, the central bank-backed digital mm-hmm. currencies? Is that gaining traction, do you think? Or is it just a, a hot topic? Well, we kind of already have one. I mean, Tether is almost, it's close to getting to Ethereum's market cap. Mm-hmm. And although it's not a CBDC, it's a proxy US dollar used by exchanges to move value around. Mm-hmm. And clearly that's working very well. Uh, and it's used by a lot of people to move value around quickly. It's much easier to move large amounts of crypto around than large amounts of fiat around. And we see that every day. We, we, we move millions of dollars worth of crypto around in very short times and far shorter times than we could use to make fiat transfers. So there's definitely a use case for these CBDCs. The only question is, will they be permissioned or not? And so if they're permissioned CBDCs, they probably won't be attractive as the permissionless mm. ones. So uh, again, Facebook, uh, Facebook dusted off its, made dust off its Libra project, mm-hmm. and they clearly want to do this. They have... You know, two billion active users who they want to bank, and that would make them multiples of the size of people like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. Were they to have that user base banked, and it makes sense for them to do that. I mean, surely Apple must be working on the same thing in the background. I'm not sure, but <laughs> but if I was, but if you think of the user base that Facebook have in WhatsApp, Instagram, mm-hmm. you know, buying Instagram using uh, using a Facebook currency, sends your friends friends send money around using WhatsApp. Um, Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they should buy Revolut or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure they probably tried already. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so th- thinking about this year and in, in how unique and interesting it's been, um, what's it been like for you guys with two funds, two active funds? How, how has the, since March, looked for you guys? So March was an eventful month <laughs> for everybody. Did you sleep? Uh, well, I got woken <laughs> up a few times. So we have these automatic trading alerts. So when collateral gets uh, lowered in exchange and hired another exchange, we, we get phone calls. Yeah. And th- those phone calls, th- they, they're automatic phone calls. They don't respect any hours of the night. <laughs> of course. So the night of March 12th, 13th, we were getting phone calls every half hour. Wow. Um, if you imagine what we do on the arbitrage fund, we tend to be long uh, cash crypto like Bitcoin and short derivatives to hedge that because it's a US dollar denominated fund. And so when crypto fell from 8,000 to below five, we were making a lot of money on our shorts. And we have limits of how much collateral we can keep any one exchange for risk management purposes. And so we were getting phone calls saying, move collateral off this exchange because you just got too much there because the short positions were making too much money. Now on the flip side of that, the long positions were losing money in US dollar terms because Bitcoin was getting worth less. So we had you know, a sleepless night, <laughs> but we came through it and we survived. A couple of other you know, 
funds in the in the industry unfortunately didn't survive but it goes back to having good risk management processes and if they've been thought through and they're automated uh, and they're as automatic as possible then it makes sense and how has it been since then because that's that's one night of of craziness um i mean the volatility has settled down at points but you know this it's been a wild ride it's been ride. a wild ride but you know volatility i think implied vol got to 140 percent around March the 13th, which is obviously high now. It's come off down to the, the 40% for the short-term options and 50% for the longer-term dated options. So it's, and, and realized volatility has come even lower than that. So the market's really stabilized. So what I think will happen with Bitcoin is as Bitcoin goes higher in price and its market cap increases, then the effects of individuals buying and selling, say, a million dollars of Bitcoin is going to be much less just because the market cap of the pool is much bigger. Mm-hmm. So if you drop a, you know, a, a cannonball into a swimming pool, it makes a lot of ripples. If you drop it into the sea, the guy at the other side of the ocean doesn't notice. And so similarly with Bitcoin, as its market cap increases, then these, the volatility, uh, the realized volatility of Bitcoin will fall and it will become just another stable asset like gold, but much easier to move around. I mean, people make a lot of comparisons between Bitcoin and gold as a do you view it as a store of value? Do you buy that argument? Yeah, I buy the store of value argument, and I, but I also buy another argument. It's a uh, tech, and tech always gets better. Now, it changes, but it improves. So if you think of a mobile phone, when Motorola force, first brought out mobile phones, they were huge things, the size of a car battery. And then gradually, I don't know if you remember seeing uh, Wall Street with... Uh, yeah, of course, that brick of the The, the, the scene on, on the beach where you know, uh, Gordon Gecko's calling from the Hamptons, waking up Bud Fox saying money never sleeps and he's holding a brick yeah. in his hand. And then that became the Motorola StarTac. That was the latest thing. And now we have you know, the Apple iPhones and it's gone to transition. Bitcoin is a, is a technology as well and it will improve. It's, they've, uh, it's implemented things like multi-sig and there's a lot of competition for that store of value ethereum is trying to come after it we have DeFi, which is a lot of you know wrapped ethereum and other tokens so uh, it's it's um it's a technology it's evolving it will get better and so the difference between bitcoin and gold is that with bitcoin you're long a store of value and a technology Hmm. and the technology will get more accepted and it will get better how does it how does it need to get better i mean i guess one of the complaints is the the time it takes for on-chain transactions is one issue. Um, what are some of the other areas where you know Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrencies need to improve? I think the big one, the, the most obvious criticism is uh, proof of work. The mm-hmm. uh, consensus mechanism for keeping all of the nodes in sync should be better than just doing you know burning energy mm-hmm. to v- validate you know, mathematical sums that show whose transaction. Should be on the blockchain, so I think the consensus algorithm. But you know, Ethereum is doing a lot of work in that. But whoever comes up with that first alternative to the proof of work algorithm will be very wealthy. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So. Um, what's your view on DeFi? Because for a lot of us, um, we would have heard about it for the first time this year. Was it something you guys were you know aware of and evaluating for a long time, or so, is it something you've been playing catch up on? So we've been watching DeFi from afar. We think it's a very interesting space. The innovation is huge and the innovation is great. The only thing is, is when we have looked at it historically, its market cap has been too low. So we just weren't able to deploy the kind of assets we wanted to deploy to put, say, say $5 million into DeFi a year and a half ago. It was just too hard to do. What's happened lately is it's 
that problem has been solved and its market cap has increased, but it looks very, very bubbly mm -hmm. in the sense that there are some very large yields being gained from staking, but there's no obvious underlying engine that's producing those yields. There's no asset that people are that's generating 200% APRs. So it does look Ponzi-ish when we look at it from outside. Uh, but let's see. Let's see how this shakes out. People say, no, it's not a Ponzi because the tokens themselves have value in terms of governance and so on. And um, maybe they're right, but it's so easy to fork these things. And we're starting to see people who are losing money because they get into a token even before it's been launched. And they, they hear about it, they buy it, uh, it doesn't get launched and they lose money. So it looks a bit frothy, but what we're doing is we're kind of watching it, waiting it, observing it, and we're ready to get, ready to get in there once it kind of stabilizes. So it's sort of, it's, it's maturing quickly though, I suppose. Um, do, you, do you have a, a time frame in mind, do you think, when it'll be more less frothy or more acceptable? I'm Time frame, I guess, around six months time, but let's okay. see, let's yeah. see. I mean, we've, things, we've seen things like Wi-Fi go from like 7K to 40K back to 20K. Those are some pretty big moves. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what's your, what's your long-term vision for Nickel? So our, what we've always tried to be is to be an institutional manager of investable assets for investors. So we started to do the hardest thing first. The hardest thing to do in any uh, market is arbitrage. Why? Because it involves uh, multiple products across exchanges. They tend to be complex products like derivatives, swaps, quanto swaps, options. Uh, and it uh, requires low latency as well, because if you're buying something and selling something else, you don't want to wait and lose the, the price and time advantage that you have. So we started off with an arbitrage fund and that appealed to a lot of investors who would ne who'd never invested in crypto before. I would say that two thirds of our investors in the arbitrage fund have never invested in crypto. Mm -hmm. So for them, they are now invested in crypto via a US dollar uh, share class fund. We've, we launched the uh, digital gold fund because we wanted a, a BTC tracker. We had a, lots of investors saying, how can I buy Bitcoin? But they had issues about storing the private key. They didn't know who was going to hold the private key. Should they shard it? Who has which shard? And so on. So it was, it was very complicated for them to buy. They also had some decent size and they were concerned about slippage. So we designed a product that was very low slippage, but also gets around the issue of the uh, key and has no performance fees and it has a very low management fee of 50 bips. So which is lower than what you might find in competing products. And it's a daily liquidity fund. So it's not as if you have to subscribe and then leave your money in and wait three to six months before you can take your money out. You can subscribe one day, you can redeem the next. That's so it's, li so it's liquid, it's cheap, and it's, yeah. and it's also safe because Fidelity and yourselves are doing the custody for that product. And those are probably the two best names you could have doing that. So it's a it's so it's safe, it's liquid, it's cost effective to do. Uh, and the digital factors is the next evolution of this. We want to set up a multi-strategy fund. And what we're essentially doing is where it makes sense to do it, we're setting up fund offerings, so the institutional fund offerings uh, that uh, large investors can invest in and know that their money is is well shepherded and husbanded. And of the you know the multi strategies the um, that we can see in your in your show and tell from earlier, like do you do you see some of those being much more likely to succeed than others? I don't know. It, it depends on your definition of success. 
So <laughs> okay. what I mean by that is you could have a market maker who could produce a sharp of 10 and annualized returns of 40% or more. But they can probably only manage a small amount of capital because the issue of market making is you don't really need a lot of capital to do market making. So they might be able to do that, but they may not be able to handle more than a few million dollars doing that. Whereas you could have a CTA doing trend following who could handle $100 million, but have a sharp ratio of one, but still make 20% a year. And that's also an attractive fund. So I don't think there's any one that's more attractive than the other. But what is attractive is combining them all together. So you have a very diversified, non-correlated group of managers who are uh, producing alpha. And what we want to do with this fund is to spin managers out. So once a manager's come in and they've shown they can manage money and they've done that for, say, two years, which is an investable track record, we can then help them launch their own funds with large amounts of capital by introducing them to investors and helping them set up the infrastructure that we've set up. And so we would like to see a whole load of like fledgling funds that we can launch that had previously been under Nichols' umbrella in the same way that uh, Tiger, uh, hedge fund in America, had lots of Tiger Cubs. Mm. We would like to do the same thing. And it's, we would love it if in five years' time there were lots of other hedge funds around in London that we had helped incubate. It, does it surprise you that there, there haven't been other multi-strap funds set up yet in this space? It does, but it's, it's the reason why we think it hasn't been done is it's quite difficult to do. And it, uh, you can do it without doing it in an institutional way. So if you want to do it in the back of your garage, one could probably do that. But then that doesn't work because it's not an institutional, it's not investable. Mm-hmm. And to really do this properly, it has to be investable. I think, uh, I think you do a very good job of painting a bright future for, for this space. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to following up this conversation uh, as soon as we can. Uh, so thank you for coming in. Uh, before we finish, there's uh, a number of questions that we ask everyone. Uh, sure. If you don't mind running through those for me. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Um, where do you see the crypto industry in one year versus 10 years? In one year, probably not too much different from how it looks now. In 10 years, it'll be institutional. Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, BlackRock, they'll all have crypto funds. They'll all be offering that. Bill Gates said that uh, people overestimate what technology will do in two years and underestimate what it'll do in 10 years. So I tend to be in that last category. of. Any, any predictions for market cap in 10 years? Market cap of crypto, uh, multiples of what it is now. Okay. It may not be all in Bitcoin, but it be multiples of what it is now. Okay. If you could change one thing about our industry now, what would it be? Uh, the proof of work algorithm. <laughs> okay. Um, what is one piece of technology that you personally couldn't live without? Uh, probably my iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does your weekend look like when you've got time off? What's uh, the CIO of Nickel doing? I'm uh, mountain biking with my kids. I'm playing board games, uh, seeing friends. Do you guys have a, a family social. favorite board game? Uh, we've been playing one about geography recently. I forgot yeah. what his name is, but I keep it's winning. It's not Risk. It. No, it's not <laughs> Risk. It's not Risk. You have to go around a board and you have to identify capital cities and things and stuff. I forgot what it's called. Unfortunately, <laughs> I keep winning it, so I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, what movie can you watch over and over again and never get tired of? Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, nice. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, do you have a catchphrase or a motto that you live by? Uh, get shit done. <laughs> I like that. Is, that. is that emblazoned on the wall in your office? No, but it's something that we all try and do because it's, uh, it's much easier to... Uh, sometimes things look difficult from the outside, 
until you just step in and get it done. Or the other, the other one I is is um, so the most successful scientist of the last century in Britain had a motto: third best will do. Really? Because first, you never get the best. Second best is too expensive, and the third best is just fine. Okay. And he was the guy who built all of the uh, radar stations that surrounded Britain in World War II. And uh, what a classic example of his method in action was instead of designing the latest technology, valves, etc., to build these wonderful radar stations, he sent his guys down to the local radio store. He says, go and buy all the radios you can find. Or go and buy one of each. Bring them back. Take them apart. See what bits you've got. Right, now you've got to build your radar stations out of these. Mm. Why? Because we know they're making them. Mm. We know we can do it. Now, it won't be the best one, but it'll work, and it'll be there you know, in a week's time, as opposed to waiting. waiting for so it's important just to get shit done. Cool. I like that. Okay. Um, who should we all follow on Twitter? Um, Elon Musk. Okay. Yeah. What was, the, sorry, what was the last thing that surprised you? COVID. Yeah, I think that probably caught all of us off guard. Okay, last question. Who should be the next guest on our show? Etienne Brunet. Good shout. Yeah, I think we've uh, we've actually reached out to Etienne. So. Okay, well, if you need help, I can. I think he's a super interesting guy. And he, he introduced me to Dimitri. He's a very well-connected individual. He introduced me to Dimitri. There you go. Without Etienne, uh, Nickel wouldn't have happened, and maybe the wall garden wouldn't have happened. Exactly. Very so. good. Perfect. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for, for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Michael's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the Copper team. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always find me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. This show was only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown, with support from Tally Spear, Maylee Mountfort, and Eva Leela. New episodes come out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe. <laughs>